National Cardiopulmonary Resuscitation Week is held annually from the 4th to the 10th of November and provides the opportunity to learn about life-saving systems. CPR is an emergency procedure and is performed in an effort to manually preserve intact brain function until further measures are taken to restore spontaneous blood circulation and breathing in a person who is in cardiac arrest. Caleb Lachenek joins us in studio. Caleb is an advanced life support paramedic who manages a private medical training company. Caleb's passion is teaching emergency medicine. His primary focus is the emergency medical space and is in and also professional training. But the exposure to the general public is where the most difference can be made. Caleb has a BTEC in emergency medical care and rescue and he has completed his master's degree in health science education. Interestingly, in a topic that uh, we worked on together, so another sort of, uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, crossing of paths between you and I. There's been lots of crossing of paths <laughs> between you and I. So, you know, as, as you know, I mean, my big interest is the brain as well. So just to explain to the, the public, I think what people don't understand is, as we said in the introduction, CPR is there to preserve the brain, and we do CPR on people who are dead. So if we can just explain what it actually but is. do we do it on people who are dead or people who are in distress? That's I don't think I can understand that. Okay, so I think probably in, in the description that you got is the sort of general understanding of, mm. of CPR. If I can give you the medical understanding of CPR, we really do CPR to keep the heart perfused long enough that we can hopefully get it doing what it needs to do in order to perfuse the brain. So CPR on its own actually doesn't guarantee any kind of brain function. What it does do is it, it hopefully builds the system for the heart to be able to start up and do what it needs to do to keep the brain alive. And that's, uh, I think, where there's a, a giant misnomer. And I think we also need to uh, d d explain to people what perfuse means. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, okay, so essentially in order to get blood to the brain, to the vital organs, you have to be able to create some kind of pressure. And that pressure is created by the heart usually pumping against a pressure of the vessels and that pressure then results in perfusion to the distal areas. So you, you'll end up with a, a, an absolute value, an absolute lowest value that is required in order to get oxygen and glucose to move across from the blood into the brain, into the heart, into the liver, into the lungs, all of the important organs. Obviously, the, the organ we cannot replace is the brain, and so that is, is always our, our big focus. Um, and the earlier we get the heart beating to allow for good oxygenation of all of those tissues, the less likely there is to be brain damage. And you're specifically doing it on people who are dead. Cool. So CPR is only done on people who are dead. So patients who have no pulse, no signs of life. The idea there is that the heart isn't doing what it's supposed to be doing. And so we go in and squish the heart in a way that hopefully at the right rate and at the right depth and all of the things that are really important get the heart beating at about 30% of the total volume. Obviously, that heart is lying stationary. So every, every beat is you doing the compression on that patient's chest. And the idea is that if we can just maintain some kind of basic flow and improve that delivery of oxygen to the muscle of the heart, something will happen if we can figure out the reason for the cardiac arrest early enough to get that, start, that heart started up again. And I think that that's the important thing for people to realize is it's the chest compressions that are the primary thing. People yeah. focus a lot on the, 
breathing in the mouth and tilting their back and holding the yeah. nose closed and all of those very technical things. Yeah. But that's less important yeah. than the compressions. For the adult patient, 100%. So the most important thing you can do for an adult patient who collapses in front of you is start really good chest compressions. If you get that right, the chances is good that you will buy time for hopefully a public access defibrillator to be applied to the patient to get that heart to sort of Essentially what's happening is when we apply the defibrillators, the heart is, is jiggling like jelly and it's not beating effectively. We hope that would be the, the best case scenario. Worst case scenario is the heart is lying absolutely still and unable to do anything at all. When we put that AED on, so that automated um, public access defibrillator, we, the machine sort of analyzes and sees what the heart's doing. If it's doing crazy things like jiggling jelly, then the, the defibrillator will recommend that there's a shock delivered the shock will be delivered and essentially it's like slapping a, a panicking person. It mm -hmm. sort of restarts everything and you reevaluate all the things. So the, the heart depolarizes once, all the electricity, all the cells sort of depolarize at one time, hoping that the primary pacemaker of the heart, the SA node, realizes, oh, I'm in control and starts doing its job, which hopefully translates into some kind of muscle contraction and then translates into some kind of perfusion pressure, which translates into oxygen delivery. So in the um, bio that you sent us, a lot of the work that you do is with medical healthcare yes. uh, professionals. However, a lot is also with the general public. And there's a huge advantage in general public, um, be it caregivers, mm -hmm. uh, family members, knowing what to do in a crisis situation. So I think probably the most important thing is is the ability to just to recognize that we're in an emergency, that there's something not going well, because that, that starts the cascade of events or the knee-jerk reactions that help to get that patient back, hopefully, into a, a situation where their heart is beating spontaneously. So recognizing the emergency, really, really important. Anyone who's not moving, breathing, um, and, and doesn't look like they have any signs of life, so we speak about uh, movement and sort of general chest movement and good color, we should probably be thinking about activate, activating an emergency response. The challenge is, even in the best systems in the world, you're looking at at least five to seven minutes response time. In our systems where we've got traffic and load shedding and just sort of long rural distances, we're not looking at five to seven minutes. Um, and so there, the, the biggest effect on public survival is the person standing next mm. to you. So if the person standing next to you can recognize the emergency and start the basic procedures of good CPR, try and find out if there's a public access defibrillator somewhere nearby and just get some help on the way, your chance of survival increases exponentially. Mm -hmm. And when we look at some of the, the studies in, in the European spaces where we've got two to three minute um, response times and public access defibrillation everywhere, they, they look at a pre-hospital cardiac arrest survival rate of anywhere from 15 to 30%. Um, in our spaces, we're probably not hitting 7% in a, sure. in a public space. So we are in summer, and we tragically see, or not only in summer, but um, a lot of drownings. Sure. Luke gave me some quite frightening statistics to say that drownings have actually increased. And one of the reasons for that is cell phones, in that we're so busy on our cell phones, we're not actually engaging with the children we're meant to be watching. Sure. So we read all the time about drownings. Mm -hmm. We read about young children saving other children because they know what to they do. Just know the they just know the sure. basics. So what would be the steps? You 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 find someone who, who requires assistance. Do you first phone? Do you start doing CPR? Do you shout and scream? What where where does one start? And who do you phone? 
and this is this is a challenge um, in that it if you have a look at the protocolized things it's a little different for adults and kids but let's just make it as simple as possible so you find somebody who doesn't have signs of life your very first port of call is to find somebody who can help you mm -hmm. so so my recommendation is scream shout try and get the neighbors try and get someone from inside the house if you know you're completely alone and there's no access to help immediately just get on your phone and start your um, your loudspeaker so that you can phone and do mm. at the same time your first step is then going to be to check that there is no response so we talk about tapping and shouting on the patient's shoulders and saying to the patient are you okay at like quite loud so that if they are sort of in and out of consciousness at least there's some kind of stimulus uh, if you get no response from that you're going to have a, a quick check for the layperson just looking for signs of life we're looking for movement we're looking for breathing movement um, the pulse check has has been sort of pulled out of the layperson training because it's difficult and mm. it's unreliable and we're not very good at it. So you're just looking for signs of life. If there's no signs of life, you're going to start immediately with the first step, which is really good compressions. Um, and so that is that your hand goes into the middle of the patient's chest. The easiest way to find that is really just between the nipples, sort of on the lower third of the sternum, and you're going to push down hard and fast. So we, we speak about a rate of about 100 to 120 beats per minute, which can be quite difficult to thumb suck. Um, there are some lay person um, options around singing. The problem is when you sing and you're stressed, you sing really fast, mm -hmm. so you don't tend to sing at the right rate. Um, and some of us shouldn't sing. And some of us probably shouldn't no. be singing, fair enough. Um, but we want to start compressions at around 100 to 120 beats per minute. So it's not too fast. Mm -hmm. And I think probably the best thing to do is if you're really interested in, in seeing how fast that is, is just go and find a metronome on Google and just listen to that rate. It's it's a lot slower than the TV shows make mm. out to be. It's the beat of club music. Yeah, well, it's it's the beat of, it's, it's you amazing. You still go to clubs, Luke. Of no, course. no, it's from the olden days. <laughs> the pilot tones push me to the floor is in fact at exactly oh. the right rate and it's yeah. perfect because you're pushing the patient to the floor. So it, that the problem is is that you, you won't have that thought no, process when no. you've got a dying patient no. in front Absolutely. of you. Um, and so if you can then focus on really good chest compressions until some more information becomes available. So that information might be somebody's answered your telephone call and they're sending help and they might then guide you through the next mm. steps, which all of the call centers are able to do. Or you get an, another neighbor or a family member to come and help you and then there are some additional things that we can do. For kids, the, the breath idea is a lot more important than for the adult. Adults tend to arrest because their heart is damaged or injured and there's some kind of arrhythmia that occurs, whereas kids tend to arrest because of hypoxia or a lack mm. of oxygen. So for a kid, it becomes much more important to do good breaths. Um, and so then your, your next step would be at some point, either when you've got additional hands or when you, you figure it's probably been around two to five minutes of continuous chest compressions and nothing's worked, you probably want to start thinking about how could I give this patient adequate breaths. And it is quite technical. There's definitely mm -hmm. some training that, that needs to go along with it because there are some things that you can get wrong and, and really not do harm because the patient's dead already, mm -hmm. but not help yourself in the process. Um, but really the idea is opening the patient's airway. So like you would do to your husband or wife if they were snoring, you could either put them on their side or, or lift the head up so that the tongue wasn't at the back of the airway and then give breath using your mouth into the patient's mouth at about, in a kid, 40% of your total lung volume. So we're talking about small volumes. Mm. Just enough to see that chest rise and fall. And we speak about that as if it's completely innocuous. When you do that specifically on a drowning patient, there is going to be some fluid and some vomit and, and some things that are, that are not spoken about in any of the sure. courses. And it's, 
it's one of the barriers to doing good CPR because as soon as that, that stuff sort of comes out, you want to stop. Mm. But that's exactly when we need to sort of continue. So mm. if there's any kind of fluid coming back, pull the patient onto their side, let that drain out, and then carry on with your mm. chest compressions. The benefit of having done compressions is that you'll probably have caused that volume to come out already just by doing some chest compressions. And then hopefully the breaths become a little bit easier mm. or better. Um, and then really what we do is we do 30 compressions with two breaths and we continue that until help arrives mm. or until you've got somebody to assist you. You speak about the AED um, uh, devices yes. in public places. So for example, I know they're in gyms. Yeah. Um, I know we've got one at CMR. I hope, do you know that, Luke? Absolutely not. Okay, well, I'm happy to tell you we've got one at CMR. <laughs> Where else are they readily available in sort of shopping centers? Would the security know? Because, um, you know, Luke walks past it every day and he hasn't noticed that there. it's there. Yeah. And I think it's important sure. that people know how to access it and how easy is it for a layperson to use it. We've had the wonderful Professor Kavadia explain it to us, but he's a professor of medicine. So, you know, he makes it look easy. If you're in a panic situation, even how reading the instructions, I don't know if I could use it. So the AED actually uh, was designed by Fisher-Price, oh. the, the very first AEDs that were ever made. So the idea is that everyone can use it. It's, it's supposed to be very self-explanatory. There are no laws or regulations around who can use an AED because it's completely automated. So there's no decisions that the layperson has to take except for the decision to turn it on. Um, and so that's really easy. If you've started CPR, the patient needs an AED, mm. 100%. Um, the AED actually is quite smart about how it talks you through the steps. So once you turn it on, it will tell you exactly mm. what you need to do. Everything is sort of picture-based, so you don't have to read any instructions. You can literally open it, look at the pictures, listen to the voice prompts, and do what you need to do the sticky pads that stick on the patient's chest have pictures for where they go and it's, it's quite difficult to get it wrong so mm -hmm. if it's four millimeters this way or five that way it really doesn't matter what matters is it's on the patient's chest once you've plugged in your adapter it only fits in one direction the machine will tell you what to do next mm -hmm. so so long as you have your wits about you to listen to the machine it will prompt you through every step thereafter it will also prompt you on times to pause so it'll give you a two minute timer and so it will reanalyze and shock the patient every two minutes if it's required and if it's not required it'll tell you okay you need to start cpr again so it, it gives you quite a lot of of information there are stories in the states of kids as young as eight or nine applying the aed to their coaches and and being able to use the device so it's really a simple device to use what you have to do is just disengage your brain mm. and not think about what am I doing, just listen to mm. the prompts. In terms of access, uh, there are no legislation requirements in terms of access in South Africa. So although um, like the States, there are some requirements in terms of airports, like every 10 meters there has to be an AED. Uh, in South Africa, there are none of those. So what you really need to do is when you're in the space that you find yourself in, maybe figure out where that AED is and know who has access to it. Sometimes in our infinite wisdom and in South Africa, we lock it behind mm -hmm. closed office doors or whatever it is. It needs to be in an open space that everyone can access, preferably in a box with an alarm mm -hmm. that goes off as you open mm -hmm. it so that other people know they need to come and assist mm -hmm. in that space. Um, it really depends on, on the, the forward thinking of the place that you're at. So mm -hmm. lots of shopping centers do have AEDs. Lots of schools do have AEDs. Whether they have enough uh, to be accessible within five minutes of collapse, I, I can't comment mm. on that. Mm. We definitely need to do more about the, the awareness of the need for an AED. 
So CPR remains critical even with an AED. Yeah. So the the training, because I'm I know for example running a gym and you know other sort of worlds I occupy working with children, there's a compulsory training that you need to attend in order to get certain qualifications. One of the challenges around that is that sometimes they can be quite pricey, mm-hmm. which is the first the first barrier, and then there's also the, all these mythical creatures that sort of arrive. Like if I give someone uh, mouth to mouth, because I mean they gave the one I did. They gave out a one-way valve with a little, you know, kind of plastic little sleeve on it and whatever. Because if people uh, regurgitate while you give them mouth-to-mouth, you're going to get HIV. Now with COVID, you're going to get... So there's a lot of these. First of all, it's inaccessible for people who need it as as a trainer. And it's scary because there's all these myths about the fact that this person's going to do something bizarre like vomit on you and you're going to catch AIDS Mm. or COVID or hepatitis or whatever. So with COVID, things have changed significantly in the public space. Um, the recommendation around the COVID regulations for, for CPR is is maybe don't do breath mouth-to-mouth at all. Um, it comes down again to your personal decision-making and preference. If it's a family member, there's no way you're not going to do it. Um, there is no legal requirement to do mouth-to-mouth for anyone. Um, you, your job is to do what you can do as best as possible. So if, if you're limited by COVID or you're limited by the fact that the patient's bleeding, maybe it's a good idea not to do mouth-to-mouth for that patient. I think it's also really important to understand that some patients are not going to survive regardless of what you do. Um, and so like if we're talking about that car accident victim who's gone into cardiac arrest, the chance of a lay person getting that pulse back is very slim. The, the chance of a trained person with all the equipment in the world getting a pulse back on a trauma victim is very, very slim. Um, where we play our biggest role is in your witnessed cardiac arrest in a patient who has an immediately reversible cause. And that usually is in our gym spaces and such mm. a, a heart attack or what we call an AMI, where the heart has just not had enough oxygen either due to an occlusion or whatever else it is, and we've ended up with an arrhythmia that has started. And if we can just stop that arrhythmia, we can probably get a pulse back. Um, yeah, there, there's loads of myths around around CPR. I think if, if we can leave people with the idea that you can't do any more harm by doing something, if you do something, it's better than doing nothing. And if you do really good chest compressions, it's better than doing just something. Um, and then from there, you can sort of grow it with training and, and availability of, of stock items and those kinds of things. You can change change the way that you do it. But the most important is the recognition, the starting of compressions and getting an AED to that patient as soon as possible. And then my final question is the, I'm sure it's the million dollar question, is when do you stop? Because, I mean, I've done these courses and it's it's fatiguing. Yeah. I mean, the thing is you, I mean, you know, 120, you know, that's like every half second you sort of you're compressing and, yeah. and you, you're panicking so you're struggling to breathe and you so desperately want to keep this person alive and you as you say you can't keep everybody well they're not alive so you can't bring any everybody back to life so when do you stop doing CPR as a lay person so I'll give you the the textbook answer mm. <laughs> when you're too tired to continue you stop CPR it's really nice to make sure that you've maybe made some provision to get some help so that you don't end up being too tired too early. Yeah. So the idea is that every time the AED pauses or every two minutes, you swap the compressor roll so that everyone is sort of staying fresh as, as possible to do good CPR. Mm-hmm. 
The second one is if there are obvious signs that the patient is definitely dead. So there are some things that that you won't start CPR for. Uh, things like if the patient is very rigid mm-hmm. and sort of a, a livid, um, a rigor, mortis. rigor mortis sort of idea. Um, if the patient has been dead for a long time, don't mm-hmm. start CPR. Uh, so if you if you find somebody overnight in mm-hmm. in a bed who's been sick for a while, it, it probably mm-hmm. isn't worthwhile doing that CPR. And then they speak about the more sort of traumatic ones. If if the patient is decapitated or if they've lost all of their blood volume, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter how much you push on the chest, you're not going to fix that problem. The third answer is when help arrives. So when you've got trained help coming to assist you. In our rural spaces, you're waiting one to two hours maybe for help so that you might get exhausted before that help arrives. Um, And then the fourth one is if somebody else is able to help you and take over. So it doesn't necessarily have to be trained help, but if somebody else is is available to assist you and you can teach them how to do it, then obviously you can stop. The real answer is in a witnessed arrest, I wouldn't stop until help arrives. In an unwitnessed arrest, it becomes very tricky because there's a lot of factors we don't know information about Mm. Um, and it's very difficult for a lay person to say I'm going to stop because Mm. we don't know enough Uh, sometimes it it just it make it's sort of mind space feels better to carry on until you've got some assistance but there is a limit and you're not going to be doing CPR for four hours it's probably not reasonable so a lot of South Africans um, do level aid first one Uh, level aid level Level one one, sorry (laughs) level one first aid let's get that right (laughs) Um, As Luke said, it is expensive, and I believe a lot of that cost is for the certificate or the certification, Um, and then it expires Mm -hmm. quite, well, uh, what is it valid for, 18 months? Every three years. Okay, that's slightly better. Um, Does it expire? You can't even do a top-up, can you? So you can't do like a a refresher, because maybe if it was more affordable and um, you just it. sort of yeah everyone would do it and a lot more people would would be able to be rescued the first aid landscape has changed completely in the last sort of year and a bit um, where those level one two and three no longer exists oh. actually um, you can do sort of unaccredited courses that are uh, short short courses hitting the same requirements as the level one two and three um, but the the move has really been to pulling first aid under the CETA mm banner and the idea there is that it is a course that never expires Mm. the challenge with that is is that the course and the certificate never expires but if you don't use the skills Mm. in i mean we know we know that within six months if you haven't used the skill you've probably lost the ability Mm. to do that skill Mm. um if you don't do the skill you lose the ability so although the CETA courses now which are a little bit more expensive but sort of last forever Mm. Although they don't expire, it's probably a good idea to practice the skill over and over again. If you're working in a space where there's high acuity, like in a gym or mm. in a in a public space, to practice every month mm. to make sure that you're actually capable of doing what you need to do. The challenge is all of that comes with cost. Mm. Um, in terms of, of cost effectiveness, the, the best thing to do would be, even if you don't have equipment to do it, is to practice just the process. And you can practice that. We do it with our hospitals on a piece of paper, with a patient drawn on a piece of paper, practicing the thought mm-hmm. process about what steps do I take. It doesn't have to be expensive. It just has to be driven by somebody. Um, so I think with the, the new CETA stuff, although we all are up in arms about how difficult it is to get it done right, it is it, it definitely changes the, the cost effect mm. because now you have a once-off cost and maybe every every two or three years a short half-day mm. refresher just to keep everyone up to date so it sounds like it's going to become another alphabet soup united cpd for cpr yes 
CPR, CPR. If, you, if you're not using alphabet soup, you're not in emergency. Medicine. 100%. Or the but, non-profit sector. <laughs> but they, they, would there then be value, for example, in, say, for example, I run, and, I run a gym and we've done the course to put up a... YouTube clip definitely to say okay let's remember this let's go through it so that when people panic they at least have a body script I think is what you say well with a bit of a mind script to take you through to say right I need to check that 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 so that they seen it visually although it's not an in-person trainer and they're practicing just going through the motions the CPR is not so much about the thought process Mm -hmm. it's got to be an Mm -hmm. automatic knee-jerk response it's it's got to be a Look for signs of life, start CPR. Um, and that decision is the one that usually takes the longest. Once you've started CPR, it's quite easy to carry on with CPR. It's just getting from the I need to to I'm going to. Um, and that can be practiced in so many different ways. You don't you don't have to have it done professionally through, through mm-hmm. training spaces. Um, a video is a really nice idea, uh, even just simulations. So mm-hmm. throwing a, a piece of paper, literally a piece of paper with a person drawn on it and say, he's just collapsed, mm. start CPR. Or do what you need to do. Those are ways that you can practice these these ideas in in really cheap ways. They like don't your have pool to cost noodles, anything. Luke. Mm. You know, you never know in Luke's gym when he's going to come at you with a pool noodle. So maybe you need to come at them with a CPR exercise. Yeah. Your children just throw it on the floor and see <laughs> what happens. See what happens. Because I think the the one thing that that, that has uh, I know from the the trainings I did historically was that the idea is that you need these really expensive complex pieces of well not machinery, but these dolls. Mm. I remember we bought for mm. one of the, the trainings we used to do. And I mean, they, they're madly expensive. They are expensive. You, you probably do want to have every now and then training on mm. something more lifelike, just so that you sort of have the idea of what it feels like and how deep to push and those kinds of things. But it doesn't have to be the bulk of the training. Uh, there's loads of options. There's a lot of online, um, like a lot of companies sort of run online systems where you can just log in and do super quick interactions on parts of of Mm. different courses and quite quickly figure out the things that you're you're missing or not completely aware of but again it's something i think we just need to talk about more so if it's if it's practiced when it happens it'll work Mm. if it's not practiced i can guarantee it's not going to work no matter how many how well you oiled the rest of your team is Mm. and we see it even in our professional spaces you can have staff in in a hospital who you would think would be really good at this but they see it once a year Mm. if they're not practicing it once a week it's difficult to get right Mm. and so with a layperson it's even harder that's why you say you practice medicine you practice all the time (laughs) (laughs) well from our side thank you very much that was uh, very uh, very insightful and I think that the nice thing is accessible because I think this idea of these fancy dolls and these fancy trainers and you know and if you don't have that you somehow endanger the people around you so thank you so much Caleb for making it so accessible thank you so much Caleb and I think most importantly maybe save an emergency number on your cell phone under emergency because you're never going to find it you're never going to remember to phone 082911 or Namola or whoever it may be so maybe just just today just save a number that says emergency and the other thing was to put your phone onto speaker because then you're able to do and listen at the same time yeah and somebody on the other side will help you will help you so thank you caleb thank you ever so much thank you